through the book of Exodus called God's Glory and Redemption. And today we get to really learn a little bit about who the character Moses was. Uh, this real man, much like you and I, with, with real uh, emotion, also real personality, and real faults, uh, just like you and I. And so hope that we can identify with him as we dive into the text today. Specifically in this series, we've said, and I want to, by way of review, tell you these couple of things that we've learned. We said, like the book of Exodus, God is working a good plan built on his promises, but it rarely plays out the way that you think. And so every, every direction we go, if you will, kind of, kind of stems from those two thoughts that God, through this, this journey that he takes Moses, the children of Israel on, he's working everything for good from his plan and promise, but it rarely works out the way that we think. And then we review from last week that God drew, has drawn us out of an impossible situation to be used in impossible situations. We looked at how Moses was spared in the Nile River, and it was an impossible situation for him as Pharaoh had declared, uh, made a decree, if you will, that all male firstborns or all male children, for that matter, would be killed. And so he was drawn out, just like we are in Christ, to be used in whatever impossible situation God has us in. So kind of think of those things as we look uh, at the text today. And I want to read uh, the rest of chapter 2, or almost the rest of it. There's a few verses that we'll save for next week. But as I read this, I want you to, we'll say our affirmation in a second, I want you to really think about um, the text. Like I said last week, Old Testament narratives are amazing. They're filled with a lot of detail. And so think of them in that way, inserting yourself into that narrative. And I think of it this way too. I'm a big movie guy. I love watching movies. When you read through the text in Old Testament narratives, it's, it's almost as if you can kind of put yourself into that scene. And there's details in movies often as there is where like somebody does something, as we'll see Moses kind of does something today. You're like, why did he do that? There's more of the backstory. You kind of have to fill that in and, and pray and ask God to help you understand that. And that's what we'll do this morning. So I'll read from verse 11 through verse 22. And there's two scenes, and I'll kind of give you the scene break. There's two particular scenes, if you will, if we're thinking movie, uh, in this text. And, and there are two separate ones with verse 15 kind of bridging that. This is what it says. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answers, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. That's kind of the end of the first scene, if you will. Here's the second. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner 
in a foreign land. With that, I want to pray for us. I'd ask you to pray too as we read God's Word. And this is not just on Sunday mornings. This is as you open uh, the Word through the week. Just ask God, would you speak to my heart? Would you clear away any distraction? Would you, would you transform me through this Word? You do that and I'll pray for us collectively. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for its truth. We thank you for coming here and gathering today. We thank you for this weekend, a weekend to just be grateful for your provision and goodness and gather with family and friends and pray that that was a time where we could truly reflect on, for those of us that know Christ, how grateful we ought to be and how grateful we truly are for the blessings of Christ. And Father, I pray that you'd speak through us through your word. If there is one that doesn't know Jesus, that they would leave today with a new gratitude in their hearts for salvation, that you would, by your spirit, move. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. I remember as a young, young boy and then growing into my teenage years, wondering this very question, what does God have for me in life? And I would think about that. What does he want to do in my life? I grew up in a Christian home, so I grew up where I was very saturated in the church environment. It was very saturated uh, in a word-centered environment. And I always felt like God had a direction for me, but I just didn't know what that was. And in a house like mine, it was an expectation, if you will, that you would be somehow, not an expectation in ministry, but always connected to the church. I got saved when I was seven, but I always kind of wondered Like, what is God doing in my life? And you'd go through seasons where you really wonder, how how is God going to work this? And what is his will in this situation? And when we talk about the will of God, it is kind of, if you will, sometimes this elusive thing that we talk about. We always want to know what God's will is in specificity for our life. Like, does he want me to take this job? Does he want me to move here? Does he want me to go into this career field? And we think about that a lot. And so, so in thinking about that, we have to understand what God desires for us in his will. And the Bible is full of those things. Even this past weekend, I, I hope that you saw this. We looked at it briefly on um, Wednesday night in, in our joint worship service. That One of the ways God says that in his word, at least, is to uh, rejoice in all circumstances. And then it says in 1 Thessalonians 5 there, for this is the will of God. So in many ways, he tells us what his will is. But often as it is, we want the details of our life to be unpacked. And sometimes we can know some things God is formulating in our life, but you and I like to rush things, don't we? I think of this illustration of false starts. You have them in track and field, right? Somebody lines up for the race and the gun hasn't gone off, and they take off out of the block before it goes. Or it's football season, right? So you get penalized for a false start on the offensive line. Somebody moves, jumps too soon, often is the case with us and the will of God. Sometimes God is doing things in our life and developing us and and using us to send us out, but we want to know now, so sometimes we'll commit what I would call spiritual false starts. We We want to do what we want to do right now, we want to help God get there. As we look at the text today, that's a lot what Moses does. Have a sense that he felt this burden in his heart for what God was going to use him for, but he wanted to jumpstart the process. Now, as I said, there's two scenes in this text. There's Moses and the Egyptian, this encounter uh, with the Egyptian, and then the Hebrews, his brothers. And then there's the next scene where he's 
uh, at the well, and he meets his future wife as he redeems and saves these uh, girls that go to water their flock. And so what you need to know is you learn a little bit, actually quite a bit, about Moses in the process, and these two scenes reflect a lot of his character. One has a little bit of a different outcome, but there's so much, I said this last week, there's so much in this little tiny text of detail if you just look for it. And so my goal today would be this. I wanted you to learn about Moses and see specifically that he's a forerunner of Christ. Now, he's a human version of that, so he's a flawed version of that, but in many ways, he points to Jesus, even in this text. And so that's one goal. The second is I want to glean three lessons that all of us can take away um, in this text here. So I want to start by looking at, at verse 11. I love this, like I said, movie, like one day, this is total book read or, or movie scene, one day Moses has grown up, right? When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So Moses, and we're going to read in a second the encounter, in, or not the encounter, but the recollection of this story in the book of Acts told by Stephen, and so that'll give us a little more detail. But Moses is now 40 years old. It says that in the text that I'll read in a moment. So he's grown up 40 years old, same age as me, and he is grown up, and he goes out. Now remember, he's grown up in where? In the land of Egypt. He's grown up being trained in the wisdom of Pharaoh's home, and he's grown up in the way of Egypt. And it says in the book of Acts, we'll read this in just a moment, that he was very wise, that he was well-educated. And so he grows up educated, and he sees the injustice, something in his soul, much like you and I, when we get stirred up, when we see injustices in the world, something is burdening him. Now remember, he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He grows up almost fully Egyptian, knowing that that he is not Egyptian because it says twice in this one verse that he sees his people. He knows that Egyptians are not his people. And he goes out and he sees this burden, this injustice that is happening. And something in his heart says, I need to intervene. I need to insert myself into that story. Now remember though, Moses is the pride of Egypt. He has everything. He is groomed as a prince. He is supremely gifted. He really does, and we have to know this to understand the weight of what Moses is doing. He grows up with a silver spoon in his mouth. There's no other way to look at that. A modern-day story, he grows up with everything. He has been in wealth and riches, academia. It, Moses was not a specialist in terms of education. He was a generalist. He knew a lot about a lot. He didn't know just a lot about one thing. He grew up with all the wisdom and stature of Egypt in that land. And he has everything. He's super educated. He's super wealthy. He is the pride of Egypt growing up in that home, groomed. And he goes out. And you have to know that because you know what he's giving up, if you will. And Hebrews talks about this. And he goes out towards the Hebrews. Now, Hebrews then were considered in the equation of things like animals, slaves. They were worthless and so for him to approach one of those and even say, identify with his people, they were useless to the Egyptians. They were slaves, especially in this time of oppression. And so Moses goes and he inserts himself into that. And it begs the question, why would you forfeit all that you have to go out? And I want you to think about Jesus in that way. I want to read this from the book of Acts. Stephen tells us as he, before he is stoned to death, he um, he goes over this 
account here very clearly. It gives us a little more detail. And starting in verse 22. And Moses was instructed, here's where we learn this, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed, and this was Moses' reasoning for this, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his brother thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Stephen tells us kind of from a different perspective, more detail as he's recalling it, but we learn in God's word a lot about that situation. He went out with the intention of showing them that God was using him, but he committed, as I said, this spiritual false start. Now it begs the question, did Moses know God's will for him in that moment? Did he know God's will for him. Now you see this, and it's be careful in the scriptures where you kind of like super, like impose ideas that aren't there. Now as I read that in the Acts account, I wonder, as I've alluded to, that Moses had this like burning, but he wasn't quite sure it was. But did he know what God had for him in the moment? We can relate to that. Sometimes you and I aren't fully clear what God wants us to do. And so God asks us a bunch of things, obedience related, and saying, I want you to do this. I want you to pray. I want you to go serve in the church. I want you to be a part of the body. I want you to go out and tell the world about Jesus. All these things. But sometimes we want that specific thing. And so I don't know if Moses fully knew at that moment what God's plan and will for him was. It wasn't is until when we get into chapter 3 where Moses is going to encounter God at the burning bush, which is, in terms of the will of God, you and I so desperately want that at times. Why doesn't God just show up and show me and tell me audibly or in the burning bush what his will is for my life? And so that hasn't happened yet, but we do know that Moses took matters into his own hands. He false started which is the first lesson that we can learn today, is that you and I should not be dedicated to the will of God, but the God whose will it is. Does that make sense? You and I should not be dedicated to the will of God, but the God whose will it is. That's very different. You and I often want the will of God and we'll chase, chase after that and we'll want the details of that instead of in the, in the midst of that, we miss just knowing God moment to moment. Let's say it like this, like, just do life with God, walk with him. That's kind of the nature and the message of the Bible. Just know God, just walk with him. Don't worry about the details of everything. And sometimes we miss that because we aim at the will of God. What is God's will in my life? What does he want me to do here? And what does he want me to do here? And all the while we miss just knowing him. Moses experiences that. Look at verse 12. As he takes matters into his own hands, it says he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now Moses did this in a premeditated way. Again, something was burning in his heart that he saw this injustice, but we know this was wrong because what does he do? He looks around, much like you and I look around to see if anybody's watching before we commit the sin in our life. 
And Moses does that. He looks this way and that, and he says, nobody's looking, so I'm going to take care of this guy myself. Now, God does, we know, the end of the story, use him to redeem the people of Israel. But in this specific moment, this is not the right way. We know what he is doing is wrong. And it's wrong because what does he do? He buries him. Just like all the secret sin in our life, there's so much, like I said, application in so many different directions. If you read the narratives for what they're worth, you can stop at any, like this is revealing like all the secret sin in our lives always has to be covered up. The things that you and I commit, the things that you live, you and I live in that are lives, we have to cover it up. And so Moses does that very thing. He covers it up. Many would read a text like this and say, well, yeah, I think he did the right thing because it was injustice. We learn from the scriptures here, he did maybe, like, he did the wrong thing in, in, in an attitude of maybe a right heart in the moment of what he desired to do, but it was clearly wrong because he, he covers it up. Now, was it wrong in what they were doing? Of course it was, but was it God's way and will for Moses in this moment? No. What's interesting and ironic, if you look at this and just know the story, could God come along and bury the Egyptians? Yes, he does it at the Red Sea. He buries all of them at once. Do you see the, the contrast? Moses here inserting himself in thinking this is what God wants for him, not trusting the fact that soon God will put all of the Red Sea right on top of all of Pharaoh's army. There's interesting irony in that. Moses failed to understand it. Much like our lives, this is a quote from Chuck Swindoll. Just thinking about the will of God in our life, he says, when God is in it, it flows. When the flesh is in it, it's forced. Much of our life is like that. When, when, when God is in something in our life, when this is the right job, this is the right career, this is the right time for this decision, it just comes and it flows easy. But sometimes when we insert ourselves into that situation, it feels really forced. Often as it does, we, we help God, if you will, accomplish his will because we go and, and step first. Of, often it is in a forceful way. More to this story in verse 13. He went out the next day, behold, seeing two Hebrews struggling together. So much similar encounter. He sees his people quarreling and he decides to insert himself into that. And he said, to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Now, what's interesting about this is we need to learn when we force things, when we insert, it just creates confusion. As we learn from the Acts account, Moses' intent was to show his people that he was going to be used in God's plan to deliver. But what it did was it actually created confusion. Much is it like when we false start in our life, when we go after things that God's saying, whoa, just wait on that. It creates confusion. It creates disorder. This encounter creates confusion with the brothers. And instead of being thankful that he is rescued and that he's going to be their rescuer, they just get upset with him. They said, what are you? Are you going to, the irony of verse 14, who made you a prince and judge? That's exactly what God was going to use Moses to do. And then he said this, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? This is where Moses starts to get really worried because he's been found out, right? Oh no, did they see this thing that I did? This was the moment where Moses was most lost. And friends, 
when we think about the will of God and when you think about how we often pursue that wanting to fall start it, it's if we do it that way, it jump starts a way that God doesn't need it to be jump started. It creates confusion in a way that just makes a mess of things. And it's in that moment we're most lost. And Moses is here. And what Moses doesn't need is more education. You could say about Moses, at this point in his life, 40 years old, in the way and wisdom and mighty deeds of Egypt, he should have known better. But he didn't. And Moses didn't need more education, more schooling. What Moses did need was more wisdom. And wisdom comes often by failure and huge doses of humility. Friends, wisdom often comes by huge failures and huge doses of humility. That's how God does this work in our lives. And so we can be educated, we can be smart and wise, book smart about things, but when God wants to grab a hold of our heart, he often does it by our failures and this humbling of ourselves. And that's what he's going to do in Moses' life. So God chose a different way. He brings him from the palace to the wilderness. In Moses' fear, in his Fear, he says, surely the thing is known. And when he heard of it, this is a bridge between the two scenes. When Pharaoh heard of it in verse 15, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, which is lesson two for us. God often drives us into the wilderness to prepare us for what's next. Now, here's the thing about the wilderness that we need to just pause and see because Moses is going to spend a lot of his lifetime in the wilderness. The thing about the wilderness in the Bible It is known as the place where you go and meet God. The wilderness is not a fun place to be, but if you look at stories of of people, heroes of faith in the Bible, Jacob, David flees in that way, John the Baptist. Of course, Jesus, when he starts his ministry, before he does that, he goes and he spends 40 days being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And of course, Moses here, Moses spends time in the wilderness, but the wilderness is typically a place in the scriptures where you go and meet God. And so as you think about your life, maybe some of us feeling like we're living in a wilderness, if you will, season of our life, it's often a place where you can connect with God in a deeper way than you ever could before. We said this last week that God cares more about transformation in your life than information in what he's doing in the moments, and he will finish the work. That's the promise that he started us started in us. He'll accomplish it. He'll sanctify us. But often he uses means that are difficult and circumstances that are challenging in our lives to stretch us. Friends, the wilderness is not a fun place. There's no, there's no mistake about it. Nobody's arguing that. It's dry and difficult and lonely. But it's in those moments in your life, if you're walking through a wilderness moment, that dependence on God actually becomes real. And I was thinking about this, this, this season, we, our family went and packed some meals for um, Feed My Starving Children, some less fortunate. And I was thinking of just about third world countries and poor nations of the world. And even as we watch, watch the shoebox videos, there's a genuine gratitude from those children to receive little shoeboxes. These aren't kids that are going into Walmart at 4 a.m. looking for the 60, 70 inch black screen or flat screen TV on Black Friday. These are kids with a little shoebox. And I think the difference is this. They have nothing. And so they're grateful for anything that they get. And, and put that in perspective with our wilderness moments. That's when you have nothing and you're desperate 
and you don't know where God is, and you don't know what he's doing, and you, you don't get to see everything, and your heart hurts, that's the moment that you experience real gratitude and awareness of God and dependence. And it kind of should give us a heart check in our culture. I think we experience that less because we have so much. God can be a plan B. He can be a plan C. He cannot even be a plan because we'll depend on so many other things and resources. And it isn't until God puts those wilderness moments in our life that you are completely lost and have to depend on him. People, not that they've asked this about us, but we've certainly thought it. And some, in some ways, have asked it. Would I change the last nine years that we've had with Josiah's life? And I want to answer that two ways. In one way, I would change it for him so he didn't have to experience all that he goes through. But in the other way, I think Carrie and I would say we wouldn't change anything Although all the heartache and all the, the moments of weakness in that, we see some ways that God has used it, and we just wouldn't go back and unwind it. And you have to see the worth in the wilderness moments to really get that. Now, on the other side of things, these are when we see, in hindsight, these experiences, and so they're not as fun to be in them in the moments But some of what we learn in the wilderness is because God wants to grow us and he teaches us lessons and they're his lessons based on no sin or consequence of that sin in our lives. But as we'll see in this text, sometimes it is our sin and that leads to consequence. They're created by us. They're born out of our failures. Sometimes our pride and selfishness leads us into the wilderness as it does for Moses. But thank God for lesson number three. God can redeem our failures if we will just meet him at the well. Look at verse 15. Moses is fearing Pharaoh. And you got to think about this. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Just like that, Pharaoh knows Moses' allegiance. Someone that's grown up in his home for 40 years, he's given him everything. And just like that, he knows, all right, I know your allegiance is to the Hebrews and not to me. And he seeks to kill him. This drives fear into his heart, and Moses takes off for Midian, which is a pretty good distance away from where he was. And he sits down by this well. And this is kind of entering into scene two, if you will. He sits down by this well, and Moses starts his journey in the wilderness. But we learn that God blesses him eventually. He gives him a family, a wife. Moses hadn't belonged where he was, and now he seems to fit in this story. God used this time to prepare him. Now, what he does here is he, he, he gets down to this well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came, and they draw water and filled their, their troughs to water their father's flock. And these shepherds, these apparently really chauvinist, bad shepherd guys came up and drove them away. But Moses stands up and saves them and waters their flock. This is about the moment in Moses' life that all of us should just, as I read it, you go, I don't think Moses was a dude you wanted to mess with. This is about that moment in the story as it develops. Like Moses has like gone out and he's buried an Egyptian in the sand. And then Moses is tired, fearing for his life. He sits down at a well. Shepherds come and whatever. I don't know like all the details of it, but these, these seven daughters are going to water their flock. And maybe these shepherds are just like, hey, get out of the way. And they push him. And Moses is just bothered by this. Again, his personality, you see that burning in his soul, these injustices, and he steps into it. And Moses gets in their way. However he does this, he pushes all of them out. Moses was a dude that did not back down. And so you learn some things about Moses. And he inserts himself in that situation. The result is a little bit 
different. Again, revealing to us that God wants to use Moses, but maybe this version's a little tempered. What it doesn't read is all the shepherds were buried in sand farther away from the well. Now that may or may not have happened, but it seems that this Moses is a little more refined, that God has shown him, hey, you didn't need to false start like that. You didn't need to like force yourself in that way. And so he gets to this encounter where he's at the well, he's tired, he's confused. The injustice still burns to deal with that in his soul. And so he steps into it and these shepherds come up and he drives them and saves them. And so the, the outcome of that in verse 18 is when they had come home, these daughters to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian, listen to this. They thought of him as an Egyptian, which is interesting. Delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. That would have been against culture again to do that. And he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Now it's an interesting side note that they see him as an Egyptian. Somebody that Moses didn't want to identify with. So it's an interesting thing in the text. And I want to highlight this as a side note too. Maybe some of you caught this. Maybe some of you didn't. It says there that the father's name was Ruel. Well, who was Moses' father-in-law? It was Jethro. Now that's a little, you would say, discrepancy. I just want to highlight that because as you get into future chapters, you're going to see, well, I thought that those likely are the same name. Moses' father-in-law was a priest, and so Ruel and Jethro are the same person there. Reading on, he says, Moses was content to dwell with the men. They invited him in the house, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. So she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses encounters these daughters. He's welcomed into their home. They're inviting who they think is an Egyptian, and maybe he never reveals that. I don't know, but he is definitely not fully at home and in God's will in the moment of what God is going to use him for, and he's feeling a little alien, if you will, a sojourner. Names his son that, but God protects him and provides for him in the moment. Regardless of his disobedience, God still says, I still love you. And that's the difference between false starts and track, right? You do that twice, and what are you? You're DQ'd, right? And sometimes one. If you do that in football, it's just a penalty. You're a little further back, and, and your team's probably upset with you. But not with God, spiritually. You can do that over and over, and I would argue many of us have done that over and over again, and God still is faithful and says, I still love you. And that's what he does in Moses' life. Now, I'm guessing this account resonates with you in some way, likely because you're in one of these categories. All of them burdensome. For some of us, maybe you're here today feeling like you have no clue what God wants to do in your life. Maybe like a young man like me, you're just like, I don't know what God wants to do in my life. Maybe you're in a season right now where you're making some kind of transition. Maybe that has to do with career. Maybe it has to do with schooling. Maybe it has to do with with proximity of where you might move or geographic implications there. I don't know what it is, but maybe you're here and you just, I don't know what God wants to do in my life. Now, most of the time in my life, God has just dumped the things that he wants in my life right in my lap and I've not gone looking for them. But maybe you're in that season. It's a burden. Like, I just don't know what God wants. Maybe some of you feel like you're just in a wilderness right now. Maybe you're walking through a trial Maybe you're going into one. Maybe you just feel like God is distant and you're just not quite sure what that looks like. And then maybe some of you come here and you have failed, sinned in a way that 
that is displeasing to God, but you think God can't redeem it. You have regret, and now you sit wondering. To all of us, I would say, here's really great news. If you fast forward to Matthew, Jesus makes a wonderful invitation to a burdened heart. And many of us know this text in Matthew 11, and the context is important, that Jesus is making this invitation, but he has just spoken about judgment coming to men who don't believe in him for salvation and redemption. Remember, Exodus is all about redemption. Moses is leading the children of Israel into redemption. Our series is called God's Glory and Redemption. And in Matthew 11, Jesus makes this amazing invitation. And when I think about the contrast, Moses, I said he was kind of a, a forerunner of Christ, if you will. Moses looks out and he sees the burdens of his people. He sees all the weight. And maybe one of those three categories you find yourself in, it's just burdensome. And Jesus speaks these words in verse 25 through 29, or 30 rather. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious what? Will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one... Knows, and no one knows the Son except the Father, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. And then he makes this invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here Jesus makes this invitation for all who maybe don't know what God's will is, and that's just a burden in your life. For all who maybe are walking through the wilderness in a season right now, and that's a burden. For many of you that think you've sinned or you've run so far from God that he just simply couldn't redeem it, and that's a burden to you. And Jesus makes this invitation thousands of years later for those that are burdened by the weight of oppression and just all the sin of the world, and he says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God can redeem you and I if we choose to sit like Moses did at the well and just find our rest in Christ. One of the greatest lessons you can learn from Moses is, and you'll see this as we go in future weeks, but you start to see it now is that he chose Christ over any earthly thing. We read in our scripture reading today in Hebrews chapter 11, and I just want to read this again in verses 24 through 26 there. It says, By faith when Moses, he had grown up, refused to be called the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And this is the part that I want you to see. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ greater. He rejected his high position in order to come and redeem his people. Moses considered all that God would do in his life in the suffering. He had all the wisdom of the world, all the wealth of the world. He sees the injustice, the burdens of his people, and he goes out and says, I'll forfeit all of that in order to have the pleasure and enjoyment of knowing God and walking with him. 
We're coming up on this Christmas season, and that's the very reason we celebrate. Jesus did the very same thing for us. Why we can see Moses as a forerunner for Christ. He had all the pleasure of knowing the Father in perfect fellowship, his high position, and he comes down in this humble manger form, this lowly, not kingly entrance, if you will, and he lives a life for 30 years, kind of unknown, just walking around, and then three years of full-fledged ministry and all this you know, popularity and all the miracles ultimately to come to the crescendo, if you will, of his death on a cross for us. And Moses considered that value of knowing, even though Jesus wasn't in the picture in his life at that moment, this, this knowledge of him coming for full redemption, knowing Christ in that way was more worthy and pleasurable than any earthly thing. He considered all that God was going to bring into his life greater than any wealth that he could have. That's what Jesus comes in and shows us, especially this season as we point towards remembering Christmas, his birth. He points at leaving his exalted position to come and redeem you and I as the full redeemer. Moses was a redeemer of the children of Israel, but he was a flawed version. Jesus Christ is our redeemer coming for our sin and our shame. We learn in this that God can redeem if we come to him and find rest for our souls. And so that's my challenge for you today. If you're weary, if you're burdened, if you're wondering what is God's will, just come rest at the feet of Jesus. If you find yourself in a wilderness and desperate for God's presence, just come and rest at the feet of Jesus. If you're here today and you have sinned or, or chosen a path, running from God, whatever that looks like, and you think God cannot redeem it, come and rest at the feet of Jesus. God is so good that we should be thankful for in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. Just thinking about that song that we sang, steadfast love, overwhelming and reckless love that comes after us, Father. And I pray that we would know that today, that, that this invitation that Jesus makes is one that's offered for all. Father, all of us have burdens in this room. All of us have some sort of affliction, some sort of thing that, that bothers us or pulls us. Many of us come in here and we might even feel guilty about the last six days that we've lived. And we come in here just ready to dump all of it at your feet. And Father, I'm just reminded that you are a God that desires us to do that. But Father, that confession, that full-fledged confession doesn't mean leaving this place and going out and doing whatever we want. The way of Christ is the way of surrender and repentance and obedience. And so I pray again that we would all be people that repent of a selfish, prideful, sinful lifestyle and come back to you just to know you. Father, I pray especially for those in the room who might just be confused about what your will is, that they would just desire to know you more than they care about what your will is in moments, in the details. Father, that we'd be a people that just enjoys fellowship and relationship with you. That we would not worry about the burdens and details of this life, but as Jesus said, those have enough trouble of their own that, that we would just not be anxious for anything. Father, I pray especially for those who, who are unsure that you're a God big enough to redeem their failures. Father, would you show them today that you 
are more than capable of, of turning something around or teaching us in that lesson in that way and that people would just trust you by faith today. As Larry spoke earlier, that word by faith, that all of us would leave this place trusting you in whatever situation we find ourselves in and that we would live for your glory because you are a God of great redemption. Father, thank you for Jesus who gives us life in his name. Thank you for this weekend to celebrate an attitude of thanksgiving and I pray that you would only instill more gratitude in our hearts that we would be fully dependent on you. Father, we are not, as we're about to sing, skilled to understand what your will is, but we know that you're our Savior and that you're our God and we praise you this day for it and pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. In the season of Thanksgiving, I just want to uh, personally remind all of us of, of God's grace and remind you, I guess, of my gratitude for this church body. I was just thinking that again this morning. I'm super grateful for how this church just loves on our family. I'm sure Russell would say the same thing and, and just amazing church family to be a part of and to come in, to gather, to fellowship as we did this morning and to just enjoy what God's doing in our life. So I'll leave you th- with this from Colossians 2. Verse 6, it says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Go with an attitude of thanksgiving in your heart. Go in peace. Have a wonderful day. You are sent.